And so God comforts us. In fact, Paul tells us that in first, or second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, that God comforts us. Uh, he's a God of all comfort who comforts us with, with the, the comfort wherewith he comforts us, we're to comfort others. And so what Paul tells us in last week's message was that he was comforted by seeing Titus and communicating and hanging around with Titus. And he was comforted and refreshed by what he heard in regards to the changes in the life of the people uh, at the church in Corinth. And uh, so we, we kind of uh, looked at some things last week. Uh, and the first was this that we really want to remember is that if the Apostle Paul needed friends, so do we. We also talked last week about how God wants uh, to use us to encourage and to comfort other people. That's why he, he has saved us, so that we would bring encouragement to one another. And uh, we've also learned last week that we need to practice friendship. We need to focus. We need to be intentional. We need, we need to be forgiving as well. And that's really the key to our sermon today. But all of that really is satisfied in some sense in our life groups. This week I was uh, thinking about uh, how we need to study the Bible. We need to personally study the Bible. But do you realize that God teaches us that we need to study the Bible together, not just personally? So here's the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself not giving you an option here. He's saying this in a command. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That happens here on Sunday, but it happens on a more intimate way in our Bible studies, like on Wednesday. This week I'll be doing the survey course, an overview of the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And uh, clearly, it is done in our life groups as well. And so I want to encourage you that if you're not in a life group, to think about being in a life group and to pray that God uh, might uh, put you in a, a group, a, a good group that will be a real benefit and, and help to you. Now today, we pick up where we left off last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So I had thought that what I was going to do with chapter 7, this was my long-range plan in going through this book, that I was going to deal with the entire chapter in one sermon. And then while I was in California, I was reading this book and reading chapter 7 and thinking about chapter 7, and I, and I came to the conclusion that there are two parts, and these two parts are so important that I shouldn't just go over them quickly. And so last week we talked about relationships, and this week we talk about regrets and repentance and restoration. So when you, when you think about this chapter, even before we, we read verse 8 to the end of the chapter, I want you to realize that this is a very important passage. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that this is going to be the best message that you've ever heard or the best message I've ever given, but I will say this, without any qualification, it's one of the most important messages you will ever, ever hear. 
This passage of Scripture speaks to us all, and we all need it, because all of us deal with regrets. So if you can sit here today, and please don't raise your hand, but if you can sit here today and you think, I have absolutely no regrets in life, I don't see any halos over anyone's head here. We all have regrets. Sometimes our regrets are, are, you know, they're they're not deep or they might not be regrets that are serious issues and serious sins, but we have regrets. I I have certain regrets and my wife and I always talk about one regret we had many, many years ago where we received some great advice uh, about something financially and if we had only listened to that advice, we probably would be independently wealthy today. Now, I don't think it was a sinful thing, but I regret it. I don't wake up in the middle of the night regretting it, but every time I have to think, well, can I afford this? Somehow it goes back and I think, I regret that. But then there are serious issues that we regret. We have guilt over, shame over. We we have remorse as, as we think about these big issues. Sometimes people know what those issues are. Other times, we might hide them quite well. Sometimes our regrets come to us when we lay our heads down on the pillow at night and no one else is around, but we lay our heads down and before we even fall asleep, if we can fall asleep, regrets overtake our minds and hearts. We begin to feel sorrow and shame and guilt. And oftentimes, even for believers, that Satan oftentimes robs us of our joy and he gets us to believe, you know what, you might know Jesus as your Savior and maybe you're going to make it to heaven, but there is absolutely no way he can forgive you of this sin and cleanse you and make you useful and profitable again. And let me tell you, that's a trick of the devil. He, he doesn't want us to experience the joy of Almighty God. And what greater joy is there to to know that God can take care of our regrets, our sorrows, our guilt. There are probably some people today that they hear the message of salvation. They hear about the love of Almighty God. They hear about how Jesus came to this earth to suffer and to die and to shed his blood and, and to pay for the penalty of our sins. And that all we need to do is receive that. And yet the devil says, you know what? You're too bad. God's not going to really accept you. And here's what happens. We don't believe the scriptures. John Piper talks about this chapter. And he talks about regrets. And he tells us that the bottom line issue with our regrets is this. That we do not believe God. That the issue is unbelief. You think about that. You think about the prodigal son, for instance. The prodigal son, we all know the story. He, he runs off and he wants his inheritance and his dad gives him the inheritance and he goes and he lives a riotous life and, and he, you know, he just messes everything up and, and uh, you know, he, at the end he doesn't have a thing to his name. He's living among the pigs in the pigsty. And, uh, you know, his whole life is a real mess. He ends up coming home. And his his father sees him and he runs and 
What a picture of God. But can you imagine now the father saying to his son, the prodigal son, I forgive you and I restore you. And him saying, you're a big fat liar. I don't believe you. You realize when God tells us that he forgives us and cleanses us and we don't accept that and don't believe that, we're in essence saying, he's a liar. I can't believe him. I'm too bad. I have too many things in my life for him to honestly forgive. But you see, we quote so often, but do we believe it? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul talks about this whole issue of regrets and, and how he talks about this issue of repentance. And so we need to believe God. We need to believe that God is a gracious God, a merciful God, a God who loves us and a God who can forgive us and cleanse us. I read an article just yesterday, a brand new article that came out, uh, and it's by Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know if you know who Rosaria Butterfield uh, is or not. We've talked about Rosaria Butterfield before. She was the head of uh, women's studies at Syracuse University for a while. She was a very, very militant, uh, not only a militant feminist, but uh, a very militant uh, gay uh, woman. And, and uh, God saved her, and, and uh, she writes a lot of different articles, and she's a great writer, and has some great books out. And a new article that just came out <clears throat> uh, yesterday was an, an article that talked about contagious grace. Now, if you turn on the news right now, we hear a lot about things that are contagious, right? And, uh, you know, there's, there's some things are kind of frightening. Usually when we, we use the term, it's in a negative, not a positive. She uses it in a real positive way that grace itself is contagious. That's true. And what she talks about is, is Luke chapter 5, which is a chapter that you're familiar with, I won't ask you what it is, but I'll tell you it's all about the leper. And you see, oh, the leper there is an untouchable person. People wouldn't touch lepers. But when Jesus came, he actually touched the untouchable, and he brought healing to that person. It was a tremendous act of grace, God's touch. And grace then makes us useful again. It can give us meaning and purpose again, maybe even for the first time. And so she talks about that and how grace is, is seen in, in the whole issue of repentance and, and forgiveness. You see, God doesn't forgive us because we deserve it. He, he doesn't forgive us because we can earn it in some way. It's all about his grace and his mercy and his love. And uh, so what is it that we need to do? Well, you have to accept it. I have written down here, I don't have a lot of notes on this, but I have written down in big letters, accept it with an exclamation mark. We have to accept it. We have to believe that God is a God of grace and mercy, 
And when we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. There's no reason to have this remorse eat us up and mess us up. Why? Because of the grace of Almighty God. And then I have this down. We not only accept it, we have to extend it. And Paul talks about that in this passage as well, that he is extending this grace to the people at Corinth who hurt him, who did all kinds of things wrong. But because they repented of their sins and God forgave them, who is Paul not to forgive them? And so Paul doesn't want them to, to live their life filled with regrets and shame and guilt. He makes sure they know everything's clean. No more bridges burned. And so he goes on. Now I want you to follow along as I begin reading. I'm going to read from verse 8, really, to the end of the chapter. And then we'll look more specifically at what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, about this matter. So beginning in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve... With my letter, you remember we talked about this letter that Paul wrote. We don't have that letter. It's not 1st or 2nd Corinthians. It's another letter. And it was a a pretty stinging letter. And so he, he wrote that and he realized that it made them grieve. He says this, I do not regret it. No, I did regret it. So he felt sorry because they were hurting. But he also realized that it was needed. That's important as we look at some process here in just a few minutes. And then he says though only for a while. So here's what he's saying. I don't want you to have regrets the rest of your life. I don't want you to wake up in the middle of the night with regrets and you can't sleep. I don't want regrets and shame and guilt to to so eat you up that you don't enjoy the joy of Almighty God. So then he goes on and uh, he says, because you were grieved unto or into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us verse 10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to uh, uh, clear yourselves with, in, what, with what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. The word really means refreshed. And so Paul is saying we are refreshed. Verse, uh, also verse 13, And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you. Uh, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was, not, uh, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Now, 
let's just get one little thing here because I'm not going to come back to this. Do you, you ever say to anybody, I told you so? Usually we don't do that positively, do we? Now you wives, let's just pick on you wives for a minute. Your husband's doing something really stupid you, and you, you warn them and they don't listen and then something really happens and what do, what do you say? I told you so. Paul is saying, I told you so, but now on a positive. Not about anything dumb, not about anything that, you know, we husbands haven't listened to where we should have. He's saying, you know what, I boasted and, and I told you so about, the, about, tight, about this church, and it's true. Well, then he goes on, and his affliction for you is even, or his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. And so here's Paul saying at the end of this chapter, I have such great confidence in you that the power of God, that the grace of, of Almighty God is working in your life. Now, let, let's think about this passage and try our best to wrap our minds around it. First of all, I want you to realize that Paul talks about two kinds of regrets. First of all, he talks about godly regret, godly sorrow, um, godly remorse. And then he talks about worldly uh, remorse or regrets, something that's not good. And so I don't know if you ever watched Charlie Brown, but you remember when Charlie Brown would say, good grief? Well, I don't think Charlie was talking about this kind of grief, but if it helps you to understand it, or at least to remember it, there's a good grief and there's a bad grief. There's a godly grief. It's a grief that comes from God himself into our hearts and minds, and there's a worldly kind of grief. Now, I want you to notice in this account, he talks about godly regret first and what godly regret leads to. There's three things that we see in the passage. The first is this, that godly grief, good grief, leads to repentance. We're going to define repentance in just a moment. But I want you to know that what Paul's saying here is this, that godly grief, godly sorrow, godly regret, godly remorse, leads first of all to repentance. Secondly, he tells us that it leads to uh, regeneration or salvation. And so there's an issue that when we get saved, we repent and believe. And you'll understand that more as we define this term, repentance. But that's the second thing that he talks about. And then the third is restoration. And so here, in this account, the Apostle Paul makes sure that the church at Corinth, church that he's had to scold, the church that he's had to confront, that now they've repented and uh, they are truly followers of Jesus Christ. And now he's talking about restoration. He's talking about how, you know, they, they've cleaned their act up and, and Paul's not going to kick them while they're down anymore. He's not going to deal with this in any other way because they have truly repented with godly sorrow. And so he talks about these three things, and all three things really show the, the healing power of God's grace. Well, then uh, he talks about worldly uh, regret. 
And he just gives us one word here, but he, he kind of deals with it in different ways. I want you to notice in verse 10, that's a key verse, the godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In other words, when you get saved, you're truly saved. You don't regret it. You don't, you don't regret that you've repented and, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But then he, t- then he tells us about the worldly grief or the worldly regret. He says, whereas worldly grief produces death. Gives us one word. I've capitalized it on my notes because it is such an important word. So what is he talking about here? He's saying this, that when there is a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow, a worldly regret, a worldly remorse, then it just leads to more remorse. It it leads to, uh, you know, uh, rejection. It leads to regret. It leads to a guilt that can eat you up or harden your minds and hearts to almost everything. It can lead to suicide. We have examples of that in Scripture, don't we? You see, there are two people that sinned uh, in regards to the death of Jesus Christ. The first one that we all are you know, so aware of uh, is uh, Judas. And Judas had some type of sorrow, some type of remorse, but it wasn't godly sorrow. It was not a godly regret that led to repentance, which would have then led to forgiveness. What happened with Judas? That regret ate him up, and he ended up killing himself. But you see, there's another individual that we talk about. We read his books, and, and uh, you know, we, we quote his uh, verses and so forth, and that's Peter. You realize that Peter probably was pretty close to being just as bad of an issue when he denied Jesus how many times? And yet, he felt sorrow. He felt regret. He felt remorse, but it was a godly guilt that led to repentance to where he didn't take his own life. He accepted the forgiveness of God and he went on to do great things for his Savior. And so he talks about this, you know, and we can realize that it's that when he talks about death he's talking about loss he's talking about resentment and bitterness that comes from all of this regret there's a little phrase a sentence that were put up on the board and it's used by uh, different speakers so clearly I haven't coined it Warren Wearsby used to use it and and Rick Warren has used it, and Joel Olstein has used it, and John Piper uses it. And, and it's just, don't waste your pain. That's, I love that phrase. Today, what we're saying is this. Don't waste your regrets. Don't, don't waste your remorse. Don't waste your guilt. Don't waste your sorrow. Don't let Satan take your regrets and mess your mind up and your heart up and your life up. And get you to the point where you give up. And you say, what's the use? I can't be forgiven. I can't be cleaned up. I can't be used. Well, I want you to know what repentance is. And then we're going to look at a quick process here. And first of all, I want you to realize that here's a definition of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and attitude which leads to a corresponding change of behavior and action. Let me read that again. Repentance, this is a a definition that 
I remember getting way back in my college days at Davis College in our theology class. It is a change of mind and attitude which leads to a corresponding change of behavior and action. And so we need to realize that repentance not, isn't just an emotional thing where you feel bad. Just because you cry, it doesn't mean you've repented. True repentance, then, is where we have a change of mind, of belief, of what we're thinking, of our attitude, which leads, then, true repentance, then, leads to a change in our actions and our behavior. And so, it's a change of heart. It's a, it's a change in regards to sin and to God and, and to his word. And I think it's a change that really deals with forgiveness as well. So I want to talk about a process. And we'll, we'll look at it briefly, but this process is so very, very important. I think it's a personal process that we go through as we deal with God, but as we deal with one another as well. This is a process that will help you in your marriages. This is a process that will help you in relationships and in your families as well, because the same process is put into effect if we really want change and forgiveness. Well, it begins then with rebuke. How did Paul rebuke uh, these people? Well, he rebuked them by writing them a letter. That's how he had to do it. And Titus brought the letter to them. We're not always rebuked by people, although God uses people to rebuke us. Being, being rebuked is not fun, by the way. Usually while it's happening, we're not just saying, hey, thank you for rebuking me. Thank you for pointing out what I'm doing wrong. And anybody who loves to rebuke people, well, I, I think they have a real problem. But it always begins with, with rebuke because what we need to see is what God's word says and how we're not matching up to God's word. I think it's so important for us to realize how important God's word is. You realize that the only absolute objective truth we have is God's word. That's truth that's settled in heaven forever and ever. That's why... Peter tells us in, in uh, 2 Peter that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And you know what he's given us in? That in? The truth of his word. And so we need to hear the truth of God's word. If you rebuke somebody, and, and that, you don't have to necessarily use that word. It, it ought to be loving. It ought to be gracious. But it ought to be firm. And it has to be the truth of God's word. We're not to be running around confronting people with our own opinions about everything, our own likes and dislikes, or our own agenda. When we rebuke and we confront somebody, it's about the truth of God's word, you see. That's where any power is. It's the truth of Almighty God's word. And uh, we need to uh, realize that God wants us to be rebuked, whether it's from his word itself, whether people that are using that word, it might be in some other way that God rebukes us. Well, second is this, that we need to receive it. That means that you need to listen. Sometimes we're not real good at listening. We don't want to listen. Um, we're not good at hearing things sometimes. You ever notice how sometimes when we 
somebody says something or does, you know, that we don't want to hear, our, our hearing is gone. See? Um, <clears throat> the deaf have an ability that we don't have. Now, my wife used to work with the deaf in Johnson City, and whenever she was interpreting the sermon, and I know no one here does this, but when they didn't want to hear, all they had to do was look the other way. I can tell you this, we hearing people look the other way too often. We don't listen. We don't hear. And, and we need to be individuals who, who really receive, that we, we wrap our minds, so to speak, around what we have been told. Well, number three, we need to reflect. Reflection is good. We, we, need, to, we need to think about things. We need to try to understand things. I, I don't think it's always good when we just hear something quick and we make some quick apology. Maybe it's not genuine sometimes. So we, we need to understand it. We need to meditate on it. We need to pray about it. But then number four, we need to realize when it's true of us. And so you, you must come to this point when you see it in yourself. That's wrong. And I'm guilty of it. It's a time of decision. It's where we say, well, I can't be indifferent about this. I, I can't be, you know, nonchalant about this. I can't ignore it. I can't just blame other people in some way. And we have to realize that it's in us. Well, number five is that we need to repent. We need to you know, think about that definition where we have changed our mind, our attitude, but also it has impacted our actions and our behavior. And so we need to realize that it, there is an emotional component to it. You don't have to feel bad when you do something wrong. You need to agree with God and you need to work to, to change what we need to change. And true repentance then leads to forgiveness. So we need to repent of our sins. And that repentance is so very important. We need to be reminded of the wonderful provisions that God has made for our cleansing from sin. But we need to repent. Let me just give you a little sidebar here. I told the people in the first service that I have six things, so you know I have one more. But uh, in my mind, I actually have added a few, so you have eight. You get more for your money. And uh, I, I think that when we think about repentance, though, I, I think you, you need to be really careful that if you go to God and if you go to people, and you start off like this, if I have offended you, I'm sorry. You see, that word if kills it right then and there. That means you don't really believe it. If. Well, if I did this, I'm sorry. No. If, you, if all you can say is if, maybe you don't agree with it, then tell people you don't agree with it. Don't be insincere and use if I did something wrong. I wonder how many of us go to our mates and you say, you know, if I said something wrong, I'm sorry. If. If I did this wrong, I'm, I'm sorry. It's not true repentance. 
And I think that with this repentance, there, there are times when we have to make restitution. You remember Zacchaeus? When Zacchaeus uh, came to the Lord and he talked about how, you know, he, he took from people that he shouldn't have taken from and he restored. There's times when we have to restore. It's not with God. We can't repay God. But sometimes when we hurt one another, there is a time where we need to make some kind of restitution. And maybe there's, there's times where we just need to... Uh, do some rebuilding. If you've done something where you have really, you know, from a human level, where, where you have gotten somebody not to trust you anymore, don't think that just because you say I'm sorry and you mean it, that they're going to trust you again. You have to rebuild that trust. And sometimes it takes a lot of work. Well, the last thing, this is really number six. If you caught the two others, then you might have eight. But number six on my notes is rejoice, refreshed, you're restored, you're clean. And see what Paul tells them here, and he tells this again, or before, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there was a man there who did something really bad, and we're not told what it is, and he confessed his sin and he asked for forgiveness, and they were still punishing him. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 said, enough, he has repented, he has changed his ways, now forgive him and bring him right back into fellowship again. And so this isn't about punishment. And so we, we need to rejoice, we need to experience that restoration. We are forgiven and made clean and we need to forgive and make sure that other relationships are clean with us. Well, here's the things I want you to leave and think about. First of all, your attitudes and actions impact you and other people. The whole chapter is written because the people at Corinth really messed up. So that's the bad news. And you need to realize that when you mess up, it not only impacts you, it impacts other people. Romans tells us that no man lives unto himself and no man dies unto himself. It means this, that our actions, our attitudes impact each other. But repentance, then, is required for restoration and rejoicing. God's made a way, and the way is that we repent. Well, then hope and joy come from you and I following God's word. Remember, with John Piper, unbelief is the problem and the solution is to believe God's word. And so I jotted this down. Have, have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins and intimate fellowship with God? Have you repented of those sins and have you really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Well, if not, you can by simply acknowledging your sin, and by trusting in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He was punished for our sins. Don't think of this as he was punished for the world's sins. He was punished for my sins, for your sins. It has to be that personal. And so he was punished for our sins. He died in our place. He was raised from the dead so that you could be pronounced holy and alive. And so this is not through our own righteousness. 
but through what Jesus Christ did for us. So I urge you today, if you have never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus, do it now. And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus today, you've come to a saving faith in Jesus, but you have fallen away. You've fallen into sin. And God made a way for you to reconnect with him and have a relationship with him. Repenting of your sins and turning back to him is the key. Trusting him and obeying his word. And you can once again have fellowship with him. And I urge you to do that right now, today. Don't let regrets mess your life up. Because God wants to take those regrets when you repent of those and clean you up and make you profitable and useful once again. Thank him for his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Let's pray.